You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. Today, we're going to be talking about blockchain, the technology that underpins Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. As we'll hear, blockchain has a lot of potential applications in areas as diverse as supply chain management, trade finance, insurance, and even cybersecurity. But there are a lot of misconceptions, and often good reasons why a blockchain may not be the right tool for the job. To help us understand the ins and outs, we're joined by two McKinsey partners who are working closely with clients on these issues. They are Brand Carson, who's based in Sydney, and Matt Higginson, who's based in Boston. Brand and Matt Thanks so much for joining. You're welcome. You're very welcome. Happy to be here. So I think we should start with a quick level set to make sure everyone, you know, notably me actually, understands what we're talking about here. So Matt, would you mind kicking off by answering the beguilingly simple question, what is blockchain? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. and There'll be many complicated uh, explanations out there. The way I think about blockchain is really to think of it as a, as a database. And it's a database which is shared across a number of participants. And if we think about a, a network of participants, each has a computer, the idea is that at any moment in time, simultaneously, each member of that network holds an identical copy of the blockchain database on their computer. That's the essential principle. So the information is potentially available to all participants at a moment in time. And when I think about that definition as a database, I think of it in, in three parts. The first is that this is a cryptographically secure database or distributed ledger. And that means that when data is read or written from the database, you need the, the correct cryptographic keys to do that. A public key, which is basically the address in the database where information is stored, and a private key, which is your personal key, truly the security which prevents other people from updating the information unless they have that, that correct key. So it's, it's secure data. Secondly, it's a, it's a digital log or digital database of transactions. And digital is important because in many industries, we're still going through the process of digitization. And that's an important first step before you can even think about using blockchain. And finally, this is a database that's shared across either a public or a private network. The most famous public network is probably the, the Bitcoin blockchain. And that is something which has been around for many years. And you can join that network. You can become a node on the network with a computer without any express permissions, and you can leave again. So no one really knows who's joining and leaving. Conversely, you can have a private blockchain, a private network, which in an application like banking is probably much more culturally acceptable, in which you know who's participating, who's got access to the data, who's holding a copy of that database. Okay, so that's very helpful. But as a layperson, I'm thinking, well, we already have big databases and we already have the cloud where you can share big databases and manage permissions and so on. So just double click for us on why is blockchain potentially a better mousetrap? This is the core to answering many questions about why should blockchain be used. Now, I think we really have four areas of innovation here. One certainly revolves around the cryptographic keys. I mean, the, the cryptographic security we're using today 
that was originated in the, the Bitcoin blockchain truly comes from 20 plus years of cryptographic research. This wasn't just invented overnight. And the way of securing data in a distributed database through these keys is pretty unique and certainly uses cutting edge securities. That's number one. I think secondly, uh, the idea that this is distributed, a sort of decentralized uh, database means that you don't have uh, some of these issues around a, a database breaking you know, the sort of single point of failure. I, I think what you've actually got is a system that is very robust, and if one database uh, fails, one copy fails, you've got, you've got that important redundancy across multiple nodes. Uh, thirdly, the essence of blockchain is you know, chains of, a, a chain of blocks of information together. Um, when you have those blocks chained together, you're actually creating a perfect audit history. You can go back through time and see a former state of the database. If you're recording things like property titles, you can see a previous owner of the property and the current owner. You've got this perfect audit trail. But perhaps the most important aspect here, and this is what's getting, getting people excited, is this idea of process integrity. And that is, the database can only be updated when two things happen. One, the correct credentials are being applied, the private and public key together. But most importantly, those credentials being verified by a majority of participants in the network. You can really only update the database when the majority of independent computers check, verify those credentials, allow you to write to the database. So you're really securing this against the idea of single point of failure and somebody working nefariously to try and corrupt the database. You have this democratization of the process of updating the database. So Brant, let me bring you in here. If, I don't know, you're out at a dinner party or something and you mention to people that you're working in, in blockchain, what, what sort of responses do you get and, and what do you hear of some of the misconceptions about it? There are a lot of misconceptions. And, and I think actually uh, a lot of people have heard of blockchain but really uh, don't understand quite what it is. And I think that uh, you hear everything from everybody thinking that blockchain is Bitcoin or, or vice versa through to, you know, it's a, it's a truth machine unto itself. And so I think, you know, is blockchain Bitcoin? No, I mean, actually, you know, as Matt was just saying, Bitcoin is an implementation of and, and leverages a blockchain in order to, to deliver a kind of virtual currency. You know, we, we often hear, is it better than traditional databases? It's like, no, it's not necessarily better than traditional databases, but blockchain is very effective in, a, in an environment where you need to have a decentralized way of working uh, or you are looking to, to take out a centralized part of um, uh, or centralized entity. So things like in trade finances. That said, I mean, blockchain isn't as uh, efficient as traditional databases. So, I mean, it's much hungrier in terms of energy use and, and in many cases has higher storage costs. So it isn't optimal or by definition, it's much more for specific use cases, it makes more sense. You know, is it immutable or tamper-proof? It is only as immutable and tamper-proof as the implementation itself. And I mean, frankly, if you're able to take over over half the nodes in a blockchain network, I mean, it's very difficult. But if you are, I mean, you can you can tamper with it, right? Because then you'll be able to affect the consensus algorithm. And then as far as it being kind of a, you know, a truth machine, well, the blockchain is only as good as the information you put in it. So if you have a blockchain and in the blockchain, you're keeping people's driver's license information or voting history and you put in incorrect data, 
the data itself isn't isn't checked in any particular way. All that the blockchain itself does is ensure the integrity of the individuals making the transaction, ensuring that you have the right combination of a public and private key. Yeah, I would I would just add a couple of thoughts, and I agree with you entirely, Brand. I think one of the confusions over having a a coin like Bitcoin is this idea that there's there's inherent monetary or value or value of that. And when we think about the original purpose, it really was to reward those you know, the computers, the people doing the work, actually doing the verification process. And so a coin was important to provide you know, monetary compensation for, in that case, the electricity being used to do the vast amounts of computation. I think when we look to implementations of blockchain going forward, very rarely is it necessary to have a coin or some sort of reward. Instead, the reward really is, is access to data, right? If you think about a, you know, a private blockchain, a closed-loop network of computers all pursuing the same eventual goal, let's say it's in insurance or trade finance, then the reward is being part of that club, that private network, and frankly, being better able to share data and therefore, as a result of that, generate you know, better business processes. One of the things that strikes me is a lot of people are drawn to Bitcoin because you're doing away with the central authority, the central banks uh, in that case. So is disintermediation, disintermediation of the central authority sort of central to how a blockchain creates value? Yes, absolutely. Disintermediation is, is one of the ways it creates value in that you don't have a central authority. Uh, and it does make things like trade finance much simpler because you don't have intermediaries along the way. You know, there's a, a very good example of, you know, the UN in delivering some of their aid to, to Syria, for instance, has used a blockchain-based solution. And by, by doing that, they've been able to actually authenticate individuals using biometric data and, and use that as a way to ensure that the, basically the, the aid given is given to the right people and it's a, you know, a, an equitable quantity. You know, this is this is a very clean way of of taking out what would be traditionally money that would follow multiple steps in order to get to you know and transaction costs in order to get to the end uh, the end users. You know, but there are, but there are also many other reasons why as blockchain is effective. So that is only one of 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 multiple different uh, sources of value. I think the principle of disintermediation was a good one in that the idea of sort of democratization of data, streamlining processes, taking away the central agency power that could actually corrupt you know, how data is being uh, written and recorded permanently. When we actually looked at the practical applications today, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that, the real irony in some ways is that in order to justify significant investment in this new technology, you actually need somebody to take a leading role very often. You need someone to stand up and say, actually, you know, I'm going to be the pioneer, I'm going to develop the platform, and perhaps I'll bring industry partners in. But actually, I'm doing this potentially because I'm, I'm doing it, the business case says it gives me competitive advantage. And the irony is that those use cases where that makes more sense, the developers actually tend to be thinking in a more defensive way. I already hold a central role in whatever ecosystem I'm playing in, and blockchain presents potentially a, a better solution. Uh, what, one example would be somebody who's certifying uh, the quality of a supply chain, you know, organic foods, non-GMO foods. In that case, you might think of blockchain as providing a the, the source of truth, that the real gold standard details of a supply chain 
but the agencies who are developing it still want to hold that, that central role as being the authority on saying, yeah, this food is organic and we can track it down the supply chain. So there's a little bit of, a, of an irony or a contradiction there, saying, yeah, truly it's about disintermediation, but at the same time, those who are investing in the space actually think of it as a defensive play to, to strengthen their position in the center of an ecosystem. So I would guess you're, you're both out there talking to clients a lot of the time about whether they should invest, how to invest, and so on. What are you hearing in terms of how they're thinking about it? How are they thinking about the value equation? Frankly, it's not all the sort of purest view, which is blockchain is solving industry problems and we're going to, you know, this is the new world. I, th- I think there are three camps or categories of, of ways that companies are thinking about value. One is that purest or sort of academic value, which is, there are intrinsic properties of blockchain, which, you know, this point about being a better mousetrap, really do solve industry problems. They provide a way of sharing data securely across multiple parties. The examples of things like supply chain or trade finance would be, would be absolutely perfect for, for that camp. I do think there are a lot of folks who are saying, actually, maybe it's not about the technology, but maybe there's something, you know, using blockchain as a banner to modernize an industry, to move an industry forward, and also to bring the industry closer together, to collaborate, to solve perennial problems. Even if the eventual technology solution is not necessarily blockchain the way we think about it, but is much more around digitization and collaboration. I think there are a lot of clients thinking in that space. And I think there's a third, cynically, a third group who are looking at blockchain purely for its reputational value and saying, I want to prove to shareholders and the rest of the world how innovative we are. I'm going to start a, a proof of concept through things for things like you know, employee rewards points, a, a use case that in no way would benefit from blockchain. I mean, we have, we have reward systems today that work perfectly well without it. But if I announce I'm doing a proof of concept, I can attract some you know, attention, whether it's from investors or, or shareholders or the like. And I think when we look at the balance between those three, probably that middle group, frankly, is the one where we're seeing the most traction. We're seeing blockchain as a banner to attract investment, to modernize an industry, agnostic potentially of the end solution, the technology being used. Yeah, I, I must admit, I, I agree with that characterization, Matt. And I think that the, probably the most important thing for a company to do or executives to do is to just be quite honest with themselves and practical about which of those three buckets their investment is fitting into. I'm not sure they're quite as clear on, you know, one, where the value is, why precisely they're doing it, because I do think there are, are lots of folks who are looking for an interesting press release. Yeah, I, and look, the, the history of the last couple of years in certain industries, including the finance industry, there's a little bit of this disillusionment coming through, right? I think we've we've seen lots of investment, to your point, lots of proofs of concept, and 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 yet I would encourage all players and industries who've been doing proofs of concept to, to take learnings from those initial pilots. There are many industries that are still very manual-based, very paper-based. You know, take transaction banking, the sort of cash management, trade finance components are, are still using technologies that, you know, charitably are 20 years old. There is momentum here. There is investment here to modernize an industry, even if those early POCs don't, fit, don't appear to have, have borne fruit yet. Yes, and surely, you know, another issue is that many of those 20-year-old technologies that you mentioned support, you know, quite profitable lines of business for financial institutions. 
They do. It's it's a very fair point. The best example I can think of is in cross-border payments. You know, cross-border payments again is used has been using fairly old technology. You know, up until very recently, you may take three to five business days uh, to complete a cross-border payment transaction in certain corridors. You might pay two, three, up to ten percent you know, fees and commissions along the way. And frankly, the middle of that transaction for several days, your money disappears. It literally is invisible. And and I think for certain big international uh, money transfer organizations, this has been a very profitable revenue stream. I mean, th- th- these are good margins and these are margins shared out, you know, end-to-end across that payments value chain. And I think the promise of same-day, seamless, low-cost cross-border payments, instantaneous payments using blockchain is one that truly is disruptive. Um, and, and to be fair to the industry, I think you know they, they, the players, the major players, have looked at this technology, but there's always going to be a bit of a defensive play. Now, what we've actually seen in cross-border payments is that you know the, the perhaps the dominant technology, the dominant messaging player here, Swift, has looked at various technologies and has driven modernization using its its, its global payments um, initiative in order to improve the customer experience to get to that same day experience. And that is sort of forcing the industry to modernize. And naturally, those margins are coming down. So there's a little bit of just, you know, the evolution of this technology is driving improvements. But certainly, we are still hearing resistance from certain business unit leaders, as you'd expect, to this new new innovation. So let's talk a little bit more about some of the potential use cases. So how do you categorize them? One of the pieces of terminology I came across reading up for this is static registry versus dynamic registry. So tell us a little more about the use cases and and particular static versus dynamic. I mean, when we did our research and looked across industries, we found fundamentally six different categories of business applications. The first was a static registry, which is a distributed database for storing reference data, things like land title, um, food safety and origin, information that, that we don't expect to change readily, but it, it gives you kind of a, a view of, of the history, but also a, a kind of point in time, you know, point of view on ownership. The second is identity. And this is where we think that, you know, with governments in particular, I think there's a, there are a lot of applications around having just a simple distributed database with identity-related information. And this can be everything from voting records to civil registry and identity records. Uh, The third would be smart contracts, which I personally find quite interesting. And and a lot of the clients that I serve are are putting real energy into this, where smart contracts are basically just a set of conditions triggering automated self-executing actions. So you could think about things like insurance claim payouts. So, I mean, just think of Literally, you know, having a farmer in a field, they have some, you know, IoT sensors in the field and they have an insurance contract that basically pays out on a monthly basis depending upon the amount of rain received. So if you don't get enough rain, like right now in Australia, the farmers uh, in many areas haven't had enough rain. If they had insurance contracts, these would simply automatically pay out on the basis of the limited amount of rain that we've had in the past month. Dynamic registry, which you'd mentioned, is simply a database that updates as assets are exchanged. And so this is the example of things like trade finance. These are things that are much higher throughput. So the data isn't very static. It is consistently changing as assets are moving around. Payments is a clear one. I mean, lots of banks are experimenting with this around a dynamic distributed database for payments of all types, including cryptocurrency. 
And then the, the sixth is technology itself, right? Everything from ICOs or initial coin offerings through to blockchain as a service, where there are many of the big players, the big technology players who are developing that as one of their core offerings as an implementation of blockchain. So, so yeah, a couple of things I'd like to add. One is that, look, broadly, I like this idea of the static uh, versus dynamic registry. You know, static information, truly information that should not be changed. You need a gold standard copy of that versus a dynamic registry, which is going to record trade information. You know, things are getting exchanged, people owning things at different times. I, I think that's a great categorization, and that helps us think through those use cases. The, the, the part of this that sticks in my mind, and when we talk to clients that we have a challenge with, is the information that's actually being recorded on the blockchain and who's verifying the information versus the person writing it. Let me give you an example. So we talked a little bit about using cryptographic keys to prove your identity, to validate you are who you are, and to verify when you write to the database that you have the privilege to do that. So the blockchain works very well to verify your identity as being the person who has the privilege to write. What it's not doing is actually really checking the information itself. And so in Brandt's great example of you know, an insurance contract against drought for farmers, you need a gold standard source of information, in this case, an oracle, a national weather service that provides the information. And those cryptographic keys would identify it as national weather service information. That feels good. If you think of other applications, things like insurance claims, the challenge there is it could be, you know, it could be the police, it could be another party, a third party who's providing the information that says an accident has happened. Well, we can verify the who, who's writing the information. What we're going to struggle with is the what. Could it be possible to actually write fraudulent data to a blockchain? Of course. And so you have this kind of off-chain versus on-chain problem, which is we have no control over the information being written. We just have the control over the author of that information. And I think that leads, and we'll discuss more about this, but that leads to potential challenges down the line over implementation, which is maybe this doesn't prevent that sort of fraud. This is also true in, in say, supply chain, right, which we mentioned earlier is potentially a very rich set of use cases. But if you're tracking physical goods through a supply chain, I mean, sure, you can attach RFID tags to them or whatever, but that's, that's off-chain. So I would assume they're as susceptible to tampering as ever they were. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly one of the biggest challenges facing the industry. And frankly, a challenge which is being you know, tackled and hopefully overcome, which is we call it the de dematerialization or digitization, the move from physical unique goods to digital unique uh, signatures is one which is, is, is typically difficult to overcome. If, if you're tracking tomatoes through a blockchain, Who's to say at some point those tomatoes have not been substituted unless you can uniquely tag them? And there have been efforts by various organizations in the industry to develop so-called you know, ledger or blockchain anchors or anchors that actually are, are almost at the molecular level that help you uniquely identify things. Of course, in the physical world, if we're tracking things like you know, aircraft parts, it's a lot easier to stamp a, you know, a lump of steel with a unique code that then stays with that item all the way through the supply chain. But when we're talking about perishable goods or synthetic goods or, or you know, organic things, I think it does become much more difficult. And, and that's a, that's a, it's a great challenge for the industry and it's one that's being tackled. But at the moment, we're struggling with this transition between physical and digital. 
So there's another consideration too, which is what does blockchain do to a particular market, particularly when you think about using it to identi identify physical goods. So you know, what, one of the examples that we've seen in the industry is can we actually engrave the, the private cryptographic key onto something like your know, precious stones, or you could also use the same way to identify artwork, really adding value then to that, that precious commodity by giving it a unique identifier. And that is terrific for a market because you can say from its source, we can actually track this over time. The problem arises when we think about the practicality of implementation, which is what happens to the rest of the market that actually doesn't contain this unique identifier? What happens to the precious stones or the artwork that was created prior to, to the idea of blockchain? And it actually caused the industry potentially to bifurcate and certainly you know, would depress the value of those precious stones or artwork and goods that are already in the market. So when we think about the applications of blockchain, let's not only think about the technology component and looking forwards, but also think about the impact on the legacy industry itself. And does this difficult interface between digital and physical explain why there's so much experimentation in sectors where they're not facing that, right? So finance being the obvious example, a lot of what's being exchanged is already digital. That is the area where more progress, of course, has been made. And I think, you know, where you already have assets and instruments which are digital, you know, digitally native already, then it makes the whole process of adoption here make, you know, easier, but also make much more sense. And we've seen this, we've seen POC, proofs of concept, in things like, you know, exchanging of bonds and equities. And it actually sort of gets us over that initial hurdle. And so we are seeing folks already experimenting with having truly digitally native exchanges, uh, offering certain digital products uh, based upon blockchain. And I think the, the potential here is that this market will accelerate faster. We're not waiting for this kind of physical to digital transition to occur. I think, though, that it's quite interesting if you look at areas like the public sector, because in the public sector, in many cases, you have relatively static information where you have, you know, land title registry, you have voting records, you have identi identification, you have travel records, things that uh, are actually not tax records, things that are not actually accumulating that rapidly, but that the more that they could be available in a consistent way, it would actually make the operation of government a lot simpler if they could, you know, between departments, if they could be done in a in a way that uh, people could get comfortable that were quite secure. I mean, I also think in, in healthcare, again, where a lot of the assets, certainly things like imaging, patient records are all electronic. I mean, that's another area where there's a lot of opportunity to, again, make these things available, particularly when if you go to different hospitals, their information systems don't necessarily easily connect. But if you had a, a more open blockchain where you were able to store this information, it would create much easier integration between different health hospitals and healthcare systems. But Brian, that triggers a thought in my mind too, which is again, you know, related to lessons learned over the last few years in this space. And that is, it's very important that when we think about use cases for a particular industry, that we do start with a problem, not with blockchain as a solution. And, you know, there was great excitement because of the association of coin with Bitcoin about the use in payments. And I would argue that actually, if you look at domestic payment systems today in many parts of the world, the friction, the pain of doing domestic payments has already been taken away. It's already been solved. You know, the likes, of the, you know, things like uh, Venmo and Zoom and various digital money transfer 
operation solutions. There are many, many in the marketplace have already been in existence prior to blockchain and don't rely on blockchain. Equally, even in government, I think you know we are seeing a lot of talk about putting um, citizen data onto a blockchain. But where adoption or where the implementation is happening fastest is in countries where, frankly, with a very strong central government who, frankly, sort of already are able to control the data. I think that's a great point, Matt. And I, even to build on that further, if you think about the players and who's in the best position to be able to foster or further the adoption of blockchain and are actually some of the more dominant players. And so governments, because they can essentially mandate it or not, are a good example of that. But similarly, corporations uh, that are in more highly concentrated industries where there is much more market dominance are the ones that are more able to actually drive the level of standardization required. And so you can think of things like stock exchanges where that is much more the case. In places like financial services where you have lots of banks, what the banks are having to do is they're having to create consortia as a way to drive consistency of standard because there are you know so many global banks that no one individual bank can can create a standard unto themselves. In terms of where we're going to be able to drive adoption and drive adoption faster, it is in places where there is one or more players who are able to work together to, to drive a standard such that the vast majority of transactions can, uh, can, can leverage that standard. I, yeah, I, to paraphrase, it's funny, we often get asked, you know, what's the right path to adoption? Either you've got to have an authoritarian government, right, which can drive adoption because that's a good thing for, for the citizens, or at least the government presents it that way, or you have a very dominant industry player who essentially has a majority say as, as to how technology gets adopted, or, and I think this is the most exciting one, there is a compelling business case to truly modernize an industry, and, and things like trade finance, for example, Either one of those three will drive adoption. Without them, I think you're going to struggle to to see a use case really get to full adoption. And again, I guess we go back to this point that you know the disintermediation of a central authority is is not always, or maybe not even in the majority of use cases, what's creating the value. You're right, but I just want to make one more comment on that, which is this piece again around business case. I think in our conversation with you know clients across so many different industries. The biggest hurdle, if you like, in, in, within the industry is, do we have a compelling business case? Is there financial value? Is there a good return on investment investing in a technology which is still, to be fast, fairly nascent? And, and I think, yeah, you may not need disintermediation. You may not even need true democratization of data. But if we're going to invest in this technology and push it forward, it does, it does have to have an imminent return. And in a world in which you know shareholders' patience is relatively short, we often work in you know twelve, eighteen, twenty-four month timescales. It can be hard to prove that business case, and I think that's been a real struggle in in the adoption of blockchain for various use cases. And in some ways, may explain what appears to be a slightly slower adoption curve than than perhaps we originally hoped for. And when you look at this brand, you know what are the other hurdles to adoption that you see out there? I mean, there are technical hurdles to be overcome in just how the how the implementation is done. Uh, that is getting increasingly easier as multiple players are actually creating much more standardized implementation of blockchain. I think that much like with uh, with with storing information in the cloud, there's still uncertainty about blockchains, and there's a bit of discomfort from a kind of public population and use of blockchain that has to be overcome, which is always a bit of a hurdle. And then I think there's a hurdle, which is from a regulatory perspective, uh, you know, as we talked about earlier, 
you either have to be able to have a regulatory mandate, be a more dominant player, or there has to be a really compelling industry-wide business case. And so blockchain is something that certainly benefits quite a bit from either regulatory barriers being raised or, or taken down. And so I think that's another impediment. What about resource consumption? You mentioned earlier that blockchain can be quite computationally intensive, uh, and it can also be quite energy intensive because you've got all these nodes on the network replicating the ledger, doing the cryptographic handshakes and so on. You know, Is this something that's endemic to blockchain or, or is it really a function of the design choices that you make? There is no doubt that having multiple copies of anything is inefficient. I think it is worth drawing this contrast that you know, Bitcoin was set up to be intention, intended to be uh, energy uh, intensive as a hurdle to entry, right? The amount of computation you need to do was set to be high, truly as a barrier to entry to, to, to manage the number of nodes that are doing the computing work. It, one other consideration that's important here, though, is that almost aside from the inefficiency, there are also limitations under today's implementations about the amount of data that can be stored. And, and Brian, your great example of looking at you know, healthcare records, there is no implementation today that would say you'd put the actual healthcare records themselves onto a distributed ledger. Instead, you use it as sort of an index, as, as metadata for locating your, your own healthcare records. So I think under today's implementations, there are still many limitations. Are we seeing evolutions? Absolutely. And I would also argue that the the blockchain protocols that, that you know, we are seeing and, and reading about today almost certainly are not going to be the ones we're going to talk about in two or three years' time. This is a technology which is evolving rapidly. And in fact, many flavors of these protocols are evolving specifically for specific purposes. Matt, your, your answer, I think, was excellent because it is true that uh, you know, the Bitcoin implementation of, of blockchain was very much uh, you know, intended to you know, to use a, a, as much energy because it was supposed to be a barrier to entry, and there are there are many different uh, implementations being created, and also different consensus algorithms that are being experimented with in order to kind of quote unquote solve the um, the hurdle of you know energy usage as well as um, transaction time in order to you know reduce the amount of time to fin- complete a transaction right because right now to complete a bitcoin transaction most people don't realize but it actually takes minutes to complete a bitcoin transaction where a transaction on a typical database you know takes fractions of a second well i'm afraid that's all we have time for today thank you very much matt higginson in boston and brand carson in sydney uh, for a fascinating discussion you're more than welcome yeah my pleasure And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for tuning in. To learn more about our work on blockchain, disruptive technologies, data analytics, and more, please visit us at mckinsey.com. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.